So there's this scene in the Old Testament where David, after being anointed as king, and after God is known to be defeating his enemies, where he decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a chest that was kept in the most holy place of the tabernacle, and later the temple, and it represented the presence of God. And and maybe some of you are familiar with it because you've seen Indiana Jones, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, but hopefully... You know, you have a little bit more familiarity with it beyond the movie, although it is a great scene, and I would encourage all of you to watch the movie. Um, The story goes that they were bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, and that David, as this was happening, and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. In other words, they were having a party. Right, so fast forward a bit, and we read a little bit later on in the text that David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, which was something that priests would wear. It also says that every six steps, they would sacrifice an ox and a fattened animal to the Lord. In other words, the celebration was boisterous, extravagant, and it was generous. Now, I want to read from the entire next section, and I have a slide for this, but in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 16 through 23, it says this. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter, did you see what I did there? It was like very Hebrew sounding, right? Michal, right? Anyway, it's fun. Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the Lord in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed to each of their own home. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom whom you have spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now David is rejoicing, celebrating, And worshiping the God who saved Israel from her enemies and then dwelled in their midst. And he does so by singing, dancing, giving gifts to his people, and breaking with what might be described as both sensible and proper. And while he's doing it, his wife sees him and despises him for it. It's a wild scene, right? And not only did she despise him for it, but she told him that the only reason he was behaving this way was to draw attention to himself. And what's his response? 
I'm doing this because God chose me to lead his people. And if you think that what I'm doing is embarrassing now, I haven't even gotten started. In other words, David doesn't allow decorum to put boundaries around how he expresses his love and his gratitude and worship of Almighty God, especially after experiencing both his salvation and his presence. His love is boisterous, his love is extravagant, and it is filled with an emotional vigor that walks hand in hand with an outpouring of generosity. Now, coming from the one who served as the primary author of Israel's book of worship, the Psalms, this shouldn't be surprising, and it sets the table for where our passage is heading this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 12. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses this morning, but before we do that, let's situate ourselves a little bit in the story. So a little bit of context. Jesus has been laying low in a town called Ephraim, about 12 miles away from Jerusalem and Bethany, which was where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. We talked about that last week. The timeline is a little bit fuzzy. The raising of Lazarus happened at some point between the Feast of Dedication and the Passover, so anywhere from three to four months to a few weeks. All that to say, the Passover was at hand, and now Jesus is heading back to Bethany. Let's take a look at our text. It says this in verses 1 through 3. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at table with him. And that means literally like lying down at a table that was more so near to the ground, and their feet would have been extended out this way, like not sitting the way we sit at a table, just to kind of get a picture of what we're looking at. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So six days before the Passover. That means six days before Jesus goes to the cross, right? Just to kind of wrap our minds around what's going on here. But before we get there, I want to point out a few things that stood out in these first three verses. This meal, if you notice, it's for Jesus. It's for Jesus. It says so right there that, that they came to Bethany, so they gave a dinner for him there, meaning that they were honoring Jesus. Why are they honoring Jesus? Because he's the guy that raised Lazarus from the dead. This is a family. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are all siblings, and so there's a love that they have for Jesus that, that now has been, been multiplied because, because his ministry, his, his glory, his honor has touched them personally, right? It's, it's not so much that they're just friends with, with the Savior. The Savior has literally saved the life of their brother. And so they put together a meal for him. Notice the characters. There's Martha, there's Lazarus, and there's Mary. Now notice what they're doing, right? Martha is what? She's serving, which is characteristic of her. Lazarus is reclining at table, and Mary is anointing the feet of Jesus. Now, what struck me about this entire scene is that Jesus is the guest of honor, and the way he's honored, it differs from person to person. 
differs from person to person. Martha is serving. She's taking care of Jesus' physical needs. Now, unlike Luke chapter 10, there's nothing in John 12 to indicate that she's doing anything wrong, right? We know from Luke, Luke 10 that, that while Mary was at the feet of Jesus, Martha was serving and Martha was like frustrated that Mary wasn't helping. And, and even there, it doesn't necessarily say that Martha's doing something wrong. It just says that Mary chose the better thing at that particular moment. And so she's serving. That's how she's expressing her gratitude, her love, her, her, her adoration for Jesus. Lazarus, on the other hand, it says he's reclining at table with him. And, he's, and so what is he doing? He's sitting and he's enjoying simply being in the presence of Jesus. Just basking in his presence. Like, I love that. That's such a beautiful picture to kind of think through. What does that mean for us, right? But we're going to get there. And then there's Mary the one with the big emotions. I relate to Mary. I have big emotions. Her worship is both boisterous and extravagant, and as we'll learn in just a few minutes, it is generous. It's generous. She's adoring her Lord. Now, before we dig into Mary's beautiful display of boisterous, extravagant, and wildly generous praise and worship, there's something striking about the details of the scene. Now, the reason for the dinner is to honor Jesus, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. In other words, they're celebrating God's salvation. And what we see them doing, it paints a picture of how we too ought to respond to God's salvation in our lives, both individually and together as the body of Christ. So check this out. Martha's response, it teaches us that sometimes worship looks like acts of physical service. Moments when we meet the physical needs of the body of Christ. Now Martha's really good at this. She's really good at this sort of worship, but that doesn't mean that only Martha should be participating in this sort of service. In fact, as we read through the New Testament, there are both examples and commands to serve and love one another, to care for the physical needs of both those within the body of Christ and those beyond our walls. And the reason we're called to live this way, to worship like Martha, is because God in Christ has raised us to new life, right? It's the only appropriate response to what God has done for us, the salvation that we possess, the new life that we have in Christ. Man, we want to give that to everybody. We want others to understand this. And so what do we do? We proclaim the good news of Jesus, but we also live out the good news of Jesus in caring for the physical needs of God's people and those beyond our walls. Now, Lazarus' response, that's for the contemplatives in the room. For those who know how to simply sit silently in the presence of God and listen. Those who recline at table with Jesus in silence, in prayer, in meditation, and in study. This sort of thing is more difficult for the Marthas. It just is, right? And, and, and some of you who, who maybe bend towards the Martha, who wants to always serve the physical needs, you might resonate with a little bit of what I'm saying. It's like, yeah, it's hard for me to sit just silently before God. It's hard for me to sit silently, period, right? Let alone before God. But Lazarus' example is, is pushing us. It's challenging us. Let's dig in here for a little bit. These times of silence, prayer, meditation, and study, 
These are some of the habits that offer time and space for God by his spirit to work in and through us, to shape and to form us. It's where the doing of Martha's worship is birthed. Check this out. Pastor and author, Pete Scazzaro, he says it like this. I have a slide for this. A person who practices being before doing operates from a place of emotional and spiritual fullness, deeply aware of themselves, others, and God. As a result, their being with God is sufficient to sustain their doing for God. He then goes on to say that, and I have another slide, healthy Christian disciples are careful not to engage in more activities than their spiritual, physical, and emotional reserves can sustain. They receive from God more than they can do for him. They enjoy the Jesus they share with others. Their cup with God is full, not empty, because they are consistently receiving the love they offer to others. In other words, we can't give what we don't have. We can't give what we don't have. And the only way we get the thing that we want to offer to the world, the love, the mercy, the grace of Almighty God, is to carve out time and to sit and receive it from him. That's how it works. That's how it works. And, and, and lest you think I'm, I'm, I'm promoting a, a gospel of good works in order to attain God's grace, like, no, 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 no. What I'm saying is that in the same way you carve out time to sit with your spouse, to sit with a close friend, to sit with your children, the same is true for our relationship with God, that we actually need to carve out time and space so that God might work in us. So that God might work in us. And if we're not doing that, then we're going to have a really difficult time maturing in our faith. That's just true. That's just the reality. What, what the ancients called this was a rule of life. And we're going to talk more about this as we head into the fall. And we talked about this, I believe, last summer when we talked about spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines. But I am becoming more and more convinced that, that this is the path all of us need to travel on if we're going to be able to follow Jesus. That doesn't mean we're not going to, like, be saved, right? You don't lose your salvation if you don't cultivate a robust um, and deep communion with God. But it does mean we miss out on what it, what, it, what it looks like to have this deep communion with God. There's something so beautiful about how God works in and through the Spirit of God in our lives. And our job is to give him the time and the space, and, and in, a, in a sense, that's like an offering that we give to God. It's, a, it's an offering of worship. It's saying, God, I'm here, right? Here's my, here's my morning. Here's an hour in my morning. Here's a, an hour in my evening. Here's 20 minutes here. Like, Lord, just do what you got to do with me. Do what you got to do with me. Search out my heart. Search out the darkness. Carve it out. Remove it. Make me more and more like your son, Jesus. That's the point. That's the idea. There's no magic tricks. It's just... Certain ways that, that the saints throughout the course of church history have given God this time to work. And it's beautiful. And it's wonderful. And I'm not sitting here proclaiming this as someone who's mastered it by no means. Like, this is a struggle for me. This is a struggle for me. And I'm not even really like a Martha. It's just a struggle for me because I'm a human, right? And, and I'm really, like, into my phone and TV, right? Like that's, but, like, but God is calling us to something. And we've been talking about prayer a lot here at Redeemer Fellowship. 
And we're going to continue talking about prayer. We're going to continue talk about the disciplines and spiritual formation because, again, we need to give God the time and the space to work in and through our lives. We just have to. We just have to. Now, Mary, what we observe her doing during this dinner to honor Jesus, to celebrate the salvation of their brother Lazarus, her act of worship is fascinating. Because it's the sort of thing that causes people to stare. Now, I think the reason why Mary behaves this way is twofold. There's, there's a personality thing going on here. Similar to David, who wrote these beautiful works of emotionally and theologically driven songs of praise, Mary is also a person with big emotions, as we just talked about. But how these emotions are channeled, I believe, has everything to do with how both of these individuals, David and Mary, spent their time. David wrote all of those beautiful psalms, right? Psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving, and psalms of lament. Which means that David also prayed those psalms of praise, thanksgiving, and lament. In other words, David understood the importance of being with God. David understood the importance of being with God, of reclining at table with God of offering time and space to God so that he might be shaped and formed. And so when the God of Israel intervened and defeated David's enemies, when David experienced the salvation of the Lord, what was in him erupted, which is what we saw take place in 2 Samuel 6 singing, dancing, and breaking with all social norms, making a fool of himself before God. Now, Mary also knew the importance of being with Jesus. Remember, and we just talked about this, when she sat at Christ's feet back in Luke 10, Jesus told Martha that she chose the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And so when Mary experienced salvation, when she thought about how to honor Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead, what was in her erupted. What was in her erupted. I want to read it again, verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, and a pound was a little less than our pound, but all the same, a lot of ointment. Of expensive ointment, made from pure nard, meaning like this is the best stuff. This is the best stuff. And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And so this therefore, in verse 3, right there at the beginning, it indicates that Mary's actions are directly tied to Lazarus reclining alive and well at table. She takes a pound of expensive ointment. According to the crafty and miserly mind of Judas, expensive equals a year's salary worth of pure nard. A year's salary. Okay? Think about what you made over the last year, and now think about taking that and buying perfume with it. Right, right? Couple things this indicates, right? One, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they're probably a family of means, right? Because it's a servant's salary that we're talking about. So they're probably a family of means. 
but it also indicates that not only are they a family of means, but they're a family that is, is struck by God's love so much so that they're willing to be wildly generous with what God has entrusted to them. Wildly generous. And then it says that she anointed the feet of Jesus, and, and the text says that she took her hair down. And that's actually a big deal in the ancient culture. It's, it's one of those things that breaks with all cultural norms, decorum, and propriety, and she wipes his feet. See, women didn't do things like that. Women didn't do things like that. Now, according to Mark's telling of the story, she would have had to have broken open the bottle to get the ointment out. In other words, everything she's doing similar to David dancing before the ark, is making a scene. You guys tracking here? She's making a scene. And then check out what happens. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Her worship and wild generosity touches everyone in the building. Touches everyone in the building. Chances are some of you in this room have been around that sort of worship, that sort of love, that sort of adoration, where the presence of God feels almost tangible and palpable in the room. Yes, Mary is a woman with big emotions. Last week, we saw how those emotions got the better of her. This week, those emotions are channeled through the love she has for her Savior. A love that she cultivates and gives time and space to. A love that erupts into scene-making adoration that walks hand in hand with wild generosity. If the salvation of King Jesus doesn't evoke this sort of response in us, a response of erupting worship and wild generosity then we probably need to offer God more time and space for him to work in and through us by his spirit. Now, I understand personality types. And so I understand that not everybody responds to good news in the same way. I get that. At the same time, if the salvation of God is not evoking something in us, and I don't want us to feel condemned here. This is not the goal of this sermon or that we are bad Christians, but I want to challenge us. I want to challenge us. I want to challenge myself that we need to be offering God the time and space to do what he needs to do within us. We have to be doing that. And my job is to teach us all how to do that. And Lord willing, in the fall, that's exactly where we're going to start working through in our discipleship courses because I believe with all of my heart that God wants more than just a sliver of who we are and that he wants to draw us into deeper communion with him. He wants it all. He wants that entire year's worth of salary. And I'm not saying that, that, don't hear what I'm not saying, right? I'm not saying like empty your pockets. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he wants every bit of us. He wants every bit of us. That we walk through life with open hands because we know that every good gift comes from God. Everything that we receive comes from God. And ultimately, our life 
that we have in Christ, the salvation that we are going to receive when we step into glory comes from God. That's good news. That's good news. But Judas, right? So perfect, right? You feel the tension. This is remarkable. Verse 4, and if you notice, the pattern is eerily similar to what we read in 2 Samuel 6 about David and his wife. So let's recap on the scene a bit. They're all eating dinner together. A meal that was put together to honor Jesus for what he did for Lazarus. Being that Judas is there, I imagine the rest of the 12 are there also. Martha is serving. Lazarus is enjoying the presence of Jesus. And Mary is boisterously, extravagantly, and generously loving God with all of her heart, soul, strength, and mind. So much so that the aroma of her worship touches everybody in the house. And it's into this scene that Judas, the one who was about to betray Jesus, he says, well, why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Wait, what? Bro, what? Do you not not see what's going on here? Oh, yeah, but I just thought maybe that, you know, this would have been a good thing to, um, you know, give to the poor. And I just don't know if we're being wise with, right? It's like, it's like, what are you talking about, Judas? What in the world are you talking about? Now, John pokes his head out to speak to the readers, to inform us that Judas is a liar and a thief and that this has nothing to do with the poor, but rather his own wallet. Check it out. It says this, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, verse 4, he who was about to betray him said, why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And verse 6 is where John pokes his head out. He says, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas is a liar and a thief. He doesn't care about the poor. But the more important point that is being made is that Judas... Similar to the money changers at the beginning of John's gospel, we talked about that a number of months ago, he is trying to rob God of his honor and his glory and worship so that he can take it. That's what's happening. You tracking with that? Mary, you're giving that to Jesus? It belongs in my wallet. Whoa. Now, he doesn't say that out loud, but John informs us that, that, that in retrospect, it's like John's writing and he's thinking about, you know, everything that went down. And, and, and I don't know if you, you've had this experience where, like, you're going through life and then something happens, right? And you realize somebody's true colors. And then as you live your life after that moment, that catastrophic moment, you kind of look back and you're saying, like, oh, that's what they were doing. Oh, that's why they said this, or that's why they, you know, stayed late there, or that, right? And that's what you start to do that, right? When you, when you know the truth, when, when the veil has been removed, you start to work your way back through the story and recognize all the things that they were doing actually wasn't what they said they were doing. And that's, that's what John is doing as he remembers back on the life and ministry of Jesus and how Judas interacted with it. So his own memory, coupled with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, allows him to see clearly Judas's motives. 
and Judas is stealing and robbing from God. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. Now, before we move on, we need to talk about this for a minute. Right, there's the obvious point that John is making. Identifying Judas as the one who will betray Jesus. But there's also another point, and it's the same thing we saw between David and his wife back in 2 Samuel. These two, David and Mary, their hearts are overflowing with gratitude and love for God. So much so that they can't contain themselves. And as they're boisterously extravagantly and generously worshiping God, they are stopped in their tracks, mocked, and corrected. Again, I understand that we all have different personalities, but I believe that both David and Mary set a precedent that highly emotional and maybe even scene-making responses to the goodness and love of God are not only appropriate, but welcomed and expected. And the reason I say that with such confidence is because in both scenarios, God says yes. God says yes. The yes is implied in the story of David when in verse 23, it says that Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. In other words, it appears as though her judgment of David's worship resulted in a divine judgment upon her. Now, what I'm not saying is that people who struggle with getting pregnant or having children or any sort of difficulty we might have in life is a result of God's judgment, but I'm saying in that context, that is a result of God's judgment. And in our passage, look at what Jesus says. Leave her alone. Leave her alone. I'm reminded of that story from Matthew's gospel. When the people were bringing children to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray, the disciples stepped in and rebuked the people, but Jesus responded and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Leave them alone, right? Leave them alone. It's not for us to judge the manner in which someone expresses their love and adoration for Christ. And the emotions we have, they're a gift from God. They're a gift from God. We don't need to pretend that they don't exist or or, or shove them down. God has entrusted them to us. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe there needs to be order, especially when the church is gathered together. At the same time, making a little bit of a scene because we are so overcome by love, joy, and gratitude, that's a pleasing aroma to God. And we don't need to shy away from that. We don't need to shy away from that. Now check this out. We have another one of those John moments here in verse 7. Jesus tells Judas to leave her alone. And the reason is because Mary's boisterous, extravagant, and generous worship is actually telling more of a story than she realizes. Let's take a look. Verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why? So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Similar to last week, when we saw Caiaphas unknowingly preach the gospel and then roll out a plan to kill the one John the baptizer described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now Mary, in anointing Jesus, she is signaling more than she knows. 
that the Passion Week of Christ is about to begin. And notice what it says in verse 12, the next day. And on that next day, Jesus made his way to Jerusalem for what we call the triumphal entry, the thing we talk about on Palm Sunday. Now, the point that Jesus makes when he says, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me, this is not an excuse to hold back in caring for the poor, for those who are in need. A heart that is postured toward God in the way Mary's is, the way Martha and Lazarus are. These sorts of hearts understand that worship involves being with Christ, adoring him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it also looks like doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's a heart that overflows with generosity. It's a heart that overflows with generosity. And, and just a quick sidebar. The idea that, that Jesus says, you're, she's saving it for my burial, um, what, it, what it means is that it's pointing to the burial. It, it can't mean that she's actually saving a little bit for it, because as we know in Mark's gospel, the thing was cracked open. It's all gone. It's all gone. And so the idea is that she was saving it up until this point for my burial. Just a little, you know, sidebar exegesis for you. Anyway. Neither here nor there. I mean, it's there, right? Now, before we get to the last verses of the passage, the thing we have to understand is that what inspired this entire event, this meal to honor Jesus, was the fact that Jesus stepped in and resurrected a man from death. And if we remember, the death and resurrection of Lazarus, it was a sign. And we've been talking about this for months that these first 12 chapters of John are referred to as what? Who knows? Who remembers? Book of Signs. Sweet. We're crushing it. And so it's a sign that pointed beyond itself to the death and resurrection of Jesus, which means that it also pointed to our salvation, right? That's what this is a sign of. And so I can't help but imagine that the response to the sign as expressed by Martha, Lazarus, and Mary, the honor that all three of them lavished on to Jesus, that this is also part of the sign. And it points to the only rational response all of us ought to have to the salvation we have in Christ. And I believe that because that's what the New Testament teaches us. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome. It can probably be described as his magnum opus, And he goes on for 11 chapters about the wonder and glory of the salvation we have in Christ. And then in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and I have a slide for this, it says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or you can translate it as logical or rational worship. In other words, God has rescued us from sin, from death, from eternal separation from him. And he has given us himself completely the only reasonable response, the only thing that makes any sort of sense to this 
gift that has been entrusted to us, given to us, this resurrection life that we have in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, glory, eternal life, the only thing that makes any sense is to give God everything. Everything. Every single bit of who we are belongs to God. And that's not like it's mine now because of what I've given. It's no, it's like, it's like, what else can I give you, Lord? Because because nothing that I have, like, it doesn't compare. Right? That's why there's those parables in Matthew where, 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 where Jesus likens the kingdom of God to, to a treasure that somebody found. And, and when they found that treasure, they, they buried it in a field. And then, and, then, and then not only they buried it in the field, they sold everything that they had and they bought the entire field. Why? Because they didn't even want to take a chance. That someone might wander near where, they, so they bought the entire field. So, so there's so much like acreage before they can even get to the spot where the kingdom of God, the treasure is buried because they don't want to lose it. That's how important it is to them. And so they give everything they have. Man, that's good news, guys. That's good, good news. We have salvation in Christ. You catch that? And the only rational response is is what erupts in us, a life of praise, a life of worship, a life that we dedicate entirely and completely to God. Whether I eat or I drink or whatever I do, I do all for the glory of God. That is so good, right? He wants us all to give it to him. And, And the thing about what the scripture teaches us, and we've talked about this, right? The Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And what that means, and, 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 and I've shared about this on numerous occasions, is that the blessing that we're talking about, the blessing, it's not, it's not top-down blessing. It's not, it's not God looking down and, and saying, Mark gives me something. God's not looking down and saying, Mark, I'm going to bless you now. No, that's not the sort of blessing we're dealing with. It's, it's Mark giving me something, and, and, and because of the way God created the world, he's blessed as a result because that's just the, that's just the nature of, of creation. That the world has been created in such a way that when we give, we are blessed. It's, and we talked about this, right? Like it's, like it's like riding a wave. I'm not a surfer. I've, I tried in sixth grade, I got pummeled by a wave and I was out. I'm, I'm like, I'm not doing it anymore. But what I've observed is that people, when they surf and they ride a wave, you don't surf going into a wave, right? You have to go with the current. You can't surf against the current. Giving is the current of creation. Giving is the current of creation. Keeping That's the current of the fall. That's the current of of sin. That's that's the domain of darkness, to keep for ourselves, to not give of ourselves. And we know that because Jesus gave everything. And why did he give everything? Because he was in the form of God. Because that's how God operates. He gives. And so therefore, the only rational response is to give everything in return. And there's blessing there because that's how the world has been created. 
That's good news, Redeemer. That's good news. To give of ourselves so that others might go free is a picture of King Jesus. But in the same way that the responses of Martha, Lazarus, and Mary point to the sort of worship we're called to, Judas's response also paints a picture of what's to come. Verse 9 through 11 says this. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. I mean, who wouldn't want to see a guy that got raised from the dead? Whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Did you hear that? Lazarus, his entire life is a picture of God's salvation. And people are believing in droves. Text says that many of the Jews were going away and believing in him. In other words, the religious leaders were losing their power and influence. What's going on? It's right there. It's right there in the text. We talked about this last week a, a little bit more in depth. And so the only solution they can come up with, right, that the great minds came together like, I got a plan, let's kill him. They want to kill Lazarus. That's how filled with rage they had become, that they were willing to kill an innocent man who did nothing other than unwillingly respond to Jesus raising him from the dead. And it was unwillingly. He was dead. He was dead. He wasn't looking for... He's sitting there. He's dead. He's in Abraham's bosom. I don't fully know what that means. But, like, he's in that intermediate state, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden, like, he hears Jesus calling him. And, and who knows? How, maybe he's kind of like, like, really? Like, what? What? I got, I got to come out? Like, he, he was called. And if you remember from last week, he kind of hopped out because his hands were bound. Like, his face was wrapped. Like, he, had no, he didn't have an option. He was an unwilling participant in this, this moment. And, and he was, and now as a result of his passive participation in this miraculous event, he's got price on his head. It's like, whoa, you guys are crazy. Now, the way we see these religious leaders behaving is something that we can easily point to as, as what goes on out there, right? We can point our finger at the media who doesn't support Christianity, who, who, who often downright like just destroys Christianity with their rhetoric. We can point to certain political figures who believe and think differently than we do to the cultural moment that we're living in and how unchristian and immoral it is. But Judas was an insider, guys. He wasn't out there. He was, he was in. He was, he was in the crew. And these religious leaders, they're people of the book. The light's shining on the people of God. It's not shining out there. It's shining in-house. And so the question that we need to wrestle with and to ask ourselves of our church, of the evangelical streams we swim in, where are we robbing God of his worship? Preventing the little ones, whether 
actual children or those who are young in their faith from expressing their love and their adoration of God? What barriers are we putting up to prevent people from coming to faith? What new laws are we requiring of people before we let them through the door? What positions or ideals have we allowed to rob our passion so that when people look at us, they don't see what God is like anymore. They see some other movement that maybe we are trying to join up with or link arms with. Now, interpret that however you will. Allow the Holy Spirit to convict you wherever he might. But God is telling us through this story that happened that Jesus wants all of us. That Jesus wants all of us. He's not willing to share his throne. He wants all of us. And and guess what? That's good news. That's good news. That's not something we should be like, well, you are just a narcissistic crazy. No, 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 no. No, because God is all good, all merciful, all loving, all compact, all the things, and he wants us in his family. And he's saying, guess what? If you give me everything, oh, your life is going to flourish. Not the way we might think right? This is not like, well, well if, I, if I give to God, my bank account is going, no, 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 no. We will experience a communion, a depth of communion with God. The more we sow to the Spirit, the more we keep in step with the Spirit, the more we give of ourselves. These are means of grace that God just lavishes upon us, his love, his mercy, his, his relational love and, and adoration of us, Right? There's this reciprocal sort of relationship. No, it's not sort of. It's a reciprocal relationship that we have with God. In fact, gift-giving in the New Testament, in the ancient world, it wasn't, it, it, like, sometimes we talk about, like, the only real gift is if you give something without expectation of return. That's not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches that gift-giving is reciprocal. And so the gift that God has given us, which is everything, His expectation is that our return response is everything. That's how it works in the the ancient world. That's the idea of gift giving. And it's beautiful. It's not not like strings attached. That's not what it's teaching. It's teaching that when when we're given something so beautiful, when we're given something so wonderful, the only response that makes any sense is to give everything in return. And, And we know that experientially. Because when something is given to us, we want to do nothing more than, than, than lavish love and praise on the person who gave it to us. Like, that's, that's what this thing's about. And that's not a salvation of works. That is by grace through faith. We have to remember that. It's not works, lest any man should boast. I think I lost my spot. So as we draw to a close this morning... That's really the entire point of this passage. The honor we see given to Jesus by Martha, Lazarus, and Mary is a picture of what we are called to do as we honor Jesus. And the reason we are called to honor him boisterously, extravagantly, and generously is because he has given us all things. He's given us all things. 
The scriptures teach us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did you catch that? I just want to see if you caught that. While we were yet sinners. While we were actively opposing God. He looked down and he said, yeah, but I love him. And so I'm going I'm to take care of this. That's the grace that we have. That's the love that has been lavished upon us. And to ask the question that Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Man, it's good news, Redeemer. It's good news. God wants to take us into a deeper communion with him. He wants us to experience that relational love at a level that we've never experienced it. He wants us to be people who, when we think and meditate upon the goodness of God, we erupt in boisterous, extravagant, and wildly generous worship. He's trying to do something. He's trying to do something. Let's ride the wave and allow God to work in and through our lives. And if you're here this morning and, and you've never entrusted yourself to that God, the one who wants to give you everything, then today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to look at all the other stories in your life, all the other things that mark out who you are, and lay them down at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you now. I'm going to follow you now. And guess what he'll say? He'll say, yeah, let's do this. Come on. I forgive you of your sins because, because I dealt with it. Because while you were living out those other stories, I was busy dying for you. Man, that's good news. That's good news. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind. Help us to, to cultivate that love, to offer you the time, the space to work in and through our lives, Lord God. I want that so desperately for myself. I want that so desperately for every single person who, who is a part of this community of faith here at Redeemer Fellowship. Lord God, I beg that of you. Lord, pour your spirit out upon this place. Do something amazing here, Lord God. I beg you to step in and just have your way with us, God. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that one day we will see you face to face, Lord God. Thank you that one day we will be raised to new life. And thank you that we have been given the privilege and the honor of worshiping you with all we have, Lord God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.